You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the Big Woo Big Board Podcast. I am Dan Pizzuta, joined here by Chris Flum. Chris, how are you doing today? Uh, okay, I guess. I mean, pretty good. We got a guest today. Yeah, we do. We have a great guest, one of our favorite guests. We've done a couple episodes with him to this point, and we are going to talk about uh, pretty much one of the biggest topics for the Giants, and that is the selection of Daniel Jones. And for that, we have brought in Mark Schofield. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, gentlemen. I'm very excited to be with you, as always. Always a good time to chat with you. I, I know that, yes, we are going to talk about Daniel Jones, and I'm very excited to do that for a variety of reasons, but it's a pleasure to be back with you. I'm excited to talk about Daniel and hopefully put people to ease as best as we can. Is one of those reasons because you're primarily a Patriots guy and you have that to look forward to? I mean, I won't say that it doesn't help um, because it helps a little bit. You know, it is interesting to do shows. I mean... Uh, guys, I, w- I do a weekly radio spot, uh, a couple, but one of them every Thursday out in Vancouver, British Columbia. And they know I'm a Patriots guy, and so they asked about that first. But their next question w- was Daniel Jones. Uh, you know, this is Seahawks country. It's Vancouver. But, you know, the, the Jones selection has become maybe not the story of the first round or the entire draft itself, but certainly one of the headline stories where – you know, that's an example for you. British Columbia, Canada is like, tell us about Daniel Jones. And so it's an interesting pick. It's one of those that, you know, for the person, for the player involved, you certainly hope it works out. And in a sense, he proves you wrong, you know, but the almost universal, so I, I'd say, outcry against it gives you the sense that not a lot of people believe that Daniel Jones is going to turn around and prove everybody wrong. No, I, that's, basically where we've been for the last, I don't know, five months or so. It's just that we heard all along how heavily connected the Giants were to Daniel Jones. There were just so many dots to connect. But the pick just made no sense from what we could tell. Right. And, you know, I want to try to sort of put best case scenario out there at the outset. And then we can sort of dive into some of the the criticisms, perhaps. But when Gettleman comes out, we could start at this way. When, when Gettleman comes out and says, look, you know, 
there were teams that had him as quarterback one on their boards. And so it was possible that he was going to get picked before we had picked him. Say we waited until 17. There is a kernel of truth to that. I mean, I woke up draft morning to some private messages and texts and private DMs letting me know that indeed there was an AFC team that had Daniel Jones as quarterback one on their board. And it's not a team that's been discussed. It's not a team that needed a quarterback, but in doing their due diligence and scouted and putting the, together their horizontal and vertical boards at each position. And overall, Daniel Jones was their QB one. You know, we've heard that, you know, I'm here in the Washington area and the report it is that there was a faction of the Washington organization that wanted Daniel Jones. I do think that Cincinnati was potentially going to consider Daniel Jones had he fell to them. And so I do think that there is credence to the argument that, you know, Daniel Jones was looked at favorably by a number of teams, not just the New York Giants. Like I can tell you definitively that this is not a situation where there was one team that had him as quarterback one and everybody else just didn't like him. Like there were teams that felt the same way about the Giants and that he was the top quarterback on their board. So there's that aspect to it. And since that is the case, I do think that if you're Dave Gettleman and you have made the determination that quarterback is the position you need to address, and I think we could all agree, the three of us here, that quarterback was a position they needed to address sooner rather than later. And yeah. so you take that, you take the fact that your top quarterback is Daniel Jones, and you have picks at 6 and 17, but you know that there are some other teams out there, maybe not the ones you think, but you know that there are other teams that are in the same boat where they have them quarterback one, that I think the smart thing to do is take him at 6, don't leave it up to fate, you know, whether he's going to be your quarterback or not. Don't roll the dice that he'll still be there at 17. And then sort of move on and address other positions of need or best player available or whatever you want to do at 17. And so while the evaluation of Daniel Jones is one thing, and we can talk about that, for example, I don't think he was the sixth best player in this class. I don't think he was the top quarterback or the second quarterback in this class. That's my evaluation. Their evaluation is apparently different, and we could talk about whether they're right or we're right. But the valuation of we need a quarterback, this is the top guy we've graded, and we're here at six, and we don't know if he's going to be there at 17. I think that the, in, given that set of facts and circumstances and beliefs, drafted Daniel Jones at six makes sense. Like That's sort of like the best case roadmap for this. Now, perhaps the bigger discussion is that one. Is he quarterback one or two in this class? Was he the best option for the Giants? Does picking Daniel Jones just in a vacuum, regardless of where in the draft, however you want to frame it, make sense? Maybe that's a tougher debate because for me, I don't think so. Like he wasn't my favorite quarterback. He wasn't even in my top five. But at the same time, I have access to maybe 20% of the information available. Dave Gettleman gets it all. And so the fact that he believed in him and that he had him as quarterback one and other teams also felt the same way about him makes me think that there's either behind-the-scenes stuff at Duke or the way he handles meetings or some combination of factors that gives NFL teams and those on the inside the belief that, look, this kid could pan out in the National Football League. Stuff that we don't have access to. What we do have access to, however, is film. Like, say, the Wake Forest game. And stuff like that, for those of us on the outside, gives us serious trepidation when it comes to drafting. And we have access to some statistics and, and metrics and the fact that 72.6% of his dropbacks last year were zero and one-step drops, which means the variety of his offense was defined throws and easy reads. And you can't do that in the NFL. The contrast to that, Nick Foles, he had the most in the NFL last year, zero one-step drops, 52% or something like that. And so 
there's going to be a developmental process here at place. But I, I think that's sort of the way to frame this. Like, I understand if this is your top guy and other teams have the top guy, the NFL must have known some more stuff and believed in him for some reason. Just get him at six. Like, I, I know it seems weird for me to say, like, look, this isn't my top guy, but get him at six. Because if it was their top guy, then just draft him. Like, I get it. Would I have done it? No. They did it. And now, as you know, Giants fans, Giants fans hope that they have the plan in place to develop. Yeah, so that was kind of a point I made, too, when we did our recap show just after night one. We were still a little in shock of what happened. I'm fully on board with them taking a quarterback at six if they believe they need a quarterback, which we have believed for a while that they do. And they believe this is their quarterback, then fine, take him at six. And then, like you said, we can then question whether Daniel Jones was the right quarterback to be taken at six, which I think we can also agree that he probably wasn't. And you touched on the question I was just about to ask you. I think we were reading from the same Bryce Russler uh, right. piece on these quarterbacks on the Sports Info Solutions blog that, you know, Jones, he, you know, coached by David Cookliffe, and we'll get into all the different pieces of that. But I think a lot of people, especially in the media, and I think a lot of people in the NFL also were just saying how being in that system was made him the most pro-ready quarterback and that he was in a pro-style system. But when you look at how often it was a zero to one step drops, the RPOs, the screens, it was almost almost three quarters of his throws so and it's as very apparent like going back and and watching him now deeper now that he is on the team and paying attention to him a little more watching those type of throws it's very apparent in his tape that it's zero one step drops one read and that sometimes works out for him sometimes gets him in a lot of trouble but that's not something that translates and for someone who was really put out there as this NFL ready system quarterback I I don't see how that's really the case yeah Dan I think that's a great way to frame this because it has you know every draft season there's that process where the narratives sort of take shape. And that was one of the interesting narratives around this quarterback class was that Jones is a pro ready quarterback coming from a cut cliff system. And so, you know, you know, he's going to be coached up and developed and ready to come in. And it's like, well, that sounds great in theory, but when you look at the offense, like you said, and you look at the chart and data on it, and it's just, this, this is not an NFL offense. Now, maybe this is where NFL offenses are trending. But our usual understanding of a pro-style offense is three to five step drops, multiple progression reads, sometimes full field reads in the pocket, going one, two, three, four to check down. Not this kind of stuff. And can it work in bits and spurts and maybe some more offenses are going to have more success running it? Sure. But I think it sort of blurred the lines between our usual understanding of what a pro-style offense and a pro-ready quarterback is. And what the reality was and the hard truth was on the ground with Daniel Jones. And I I think the pathway to him to be successful, and this is where I got into the scheme fit with him, was, look, if you're going to be a pure sort of West Coast system, I think this could make some sense in that he did look at times, probably because this is what he was doing most of all, but to be at the best when he was making a quick throw, a quick read, his ball placement at the short area of the field was one of his strengths as a passer and so you could say 
I'm looking at Daniel Jones, and I think I see a West Coast quarterback that you can build that kind of system around. And maybe that is the plan. You know, you bring in Golden Tate, you look at some of the acquisitions that they've made. Maybe that is the plan. We're going to go RPO, like a modern West Coast type of offense. And maybe that plan is in place and they're starting to put it together. And if so, great. Like it shows some forward thinking on the part of the organization and the coaching staff to put themselves on a path to build an offense around their newly acquired quarterback and not force them into a system that might not be tailored for them. And if so, like I said, fantastic. Like that's ideal. But that's part of the coaching and valuation process, like the pure evaluation part of it. I don't think there's a true case to be made that he was a pro-ready quarterback. Like I didn't see that on film. I saw potential and certainly some upside to it, but I saw a more scheme-limited quarterback. I saw a quarterback that was defined by that 72.6% number. And I can't tell you guys how many times I've – like Bryce owes me – he owes me some commissions. Like he owes me some money at this point. I've used his name more than I'd say Daniel Jones at this point, because <laughs> I keep coming back to that when talking about Daniel Jones. But I think that number is a big factor. That scheme that he was running was a big factor. Now the Cutcliffe connection is interesting. And I know we're going to get into that, but I do want to say that, you know, his job, you know, part of the Jones aura, this draft cycle was that, Oh, he's coached by Cutcliffe and Peyton Manning and Eli Manning. So he'll be ready. And it's like, well, that's okay. That's an interesting argument. But let me throw some other names. Heath Schuler and Sean Renfrey and Thaddeus Lewis. Like these are other quarterbacks that went through Cutcliffe's system and didn't pan out in the National Football League. And in some respects with Heath Schuler, you know, almost disastrously so. Heath Schuler was a better member of Congress than he was an NFL quarterback. And he wasn't a good member of Congress, somebody could say. <laughs> so, you know, to, to hand the hat on the Cutcliffe then is one thing, especially when we remember. And it's easy to say, look, oh, he came from this system and stuff like that. David Cutcliffe's business card read head coach Duke University, not quarterback developer. Now, his job was to win games. And so he had to put on the field and install a system that helped them be competitive with the Clemsons and the Louisvilles and the Wake Forests of the world. And so that led to this kind of offense. And so Cutcliffe wasn't tasked with developing Daniel Jones to be a good quarterback. He was tasked with winning games and that led to this offense because perhaps of the lack of talent on the offensive line, or certainly you do see some drops at those skill positions. And so this, this idea that you're going to draft a quarterback and get him and like him because of the coach he played for, well, that coach wasn't tasked with developing. He was tasked with winning games. And so I think that's an important thing to put out there is that, this Cutcliffe idea, I could see why the link was there. I could see why people could talk themselves into it because of it. But I think fully weighing that, I think it's a matter of weight. How much weight do you truly give that relationship? And I wouldn't give it as much as I think it got in the media and perhaps even you know in some organizations. Yeah, that's something I kind of come back to, at least in my own head, is in the process of deciding that Daniel Jones is your QB1 and rated equally to linebacker edge josh allen not quarterback josh allen how much does the Cutcliffe connection and the fact that you've got ernie acorsi in your ear and he obviously has a connection with Cutcliffe, going back to the decision to kind of sort of draft eli manning and just the i'm starting to hate this word but old school nfl right. good old boys club right yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, 
so much in life, and this isn't just football, but life in general can be determined by trust and relationships. And those do go hand in hand. And so if you're David Gettleman and you have previously established relationships with people and you've trusted them and their insight in the past, it might make you more likely to more inclined to believe that that is the right path to go down, whether it's drafted a quarterback or what to eat for dinner. And those are two wildly different decisions, but you know, the input of people that you know and trust will go a long way into determining where you come down on a decision. You know, the interesting thing, I think, w- with, again, the relationship with Cutcliffe and the relationship between coach and quarterback in college is that this is where we get into the murky area of evaluation in terms of what we have access to on the outside and what these teams have access to. Because, you know, there have been rumblings that maybe Duke didn't do enough to develop Daniel Jones as a quarterback is sort of what I was just talking about. They were focused on winning games and maybe they didn't do enough in terms of making him ready for the NFL. You know, I've heard from the grapevine here and there that maybe that is at play. And so if it's a situation where you're David Gettleman, you've watched all this, this kid all in film and you kind of like some of this stuff and you know, his coach and you get him on the phone and say, look, what can you tell me about this kid? And, and Cutcliffe comes back and says, we didn't do enough. Like he could be better. We just didn't have the ability to draw that out of him. Then that's information we don't have, but Gettleman has. And so now he knows, look, we get him some NFL coaching. Like maybe we unlock the quarterback with it. Maybe that's part of it too. And again, that's the access to information we don't have, but these teams do. And if Cutcliffe is going out and telling all these teams, look, here's my situation with him. This is all we were limited in our ability to do because of the other talent. And so these were things I would have loved to do with him. And I believe that he can do with them as a quarterback, but because we didn't have guys that could block for him, we didn't have guys that could run a post route for him. We ended up in this kind of offense, but that's not all he can be. And if you've got a relationship with the person telling you that, and you've trusted him over the years, then you might truly believe that. And that might be the case. And so that's also sort of a best case scenario is that, and I know it's going to sound weird, but if you're a Giants fan hoping for the best here, you might want to believe that that is indeed the case. That Duke failed to do enough in terms of unlocking the quarterback inside Daniel Jones, but Pat Schumer and company can do that over the next two, three, four years. So that's interesting. And I think that brings us into something that's been going on for, I guess, the past couple days where there has been so much blowback against the supporting cast that Daniel Jones was working with at Duke that it's made him seem like Peyton Manning uh, running around with like a bunch of 14 year olds uh, playing. (laughs) I think that's gone like a little too far. And I I think I've used plenty of numbers and, and film work to kind of be down on Daniel Jones without ever even listing his completion percentage or using the Clemson game in any of of my analysis because of that. Obviously, the guys at Duke are not going to stand up very well against Clemson. But even if you take the Clemson game out, that doesn't explain Wake Forest. Wake Forest has just as many cardiologists or whatever the term these people are using now to describe who Daniel Jones played with. There were as many of them, if not more, on the Wake Forest team uh, than there were 
uh, at Duke. So uh, I'm wondering where where we just kind of go now with trying to separate that because if you look at you know some of his on target data like from Sports Info Solutions, uh, like you said, he was you know relatively accurate in the short area of the field. You go to like 11 to 20 yards, that dips a lot, and then on throws further than 20 yards past the line of scrimmage, he also was not very accurate. So I I feel like two things can be true, and we've lost this a little bit that the supporting cast was awful, but also Daniel Jones didn't do a lot to make them better, which I think is something you would like to see for a quarterback drafted sixth overall. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's a great point, Dan, that we oftentimes want to see quarterbacks elevate the level of play in those around them, their teammates. You know, that's part of the job as a quarterback and a leader of an offense. And you can make the case that Jones didn't quite live up to that. You could point to example. I remember when Jared Goff was going through his draft cycle and he arrives at California when that program was awful. I think they won one game his freshman year. And by the time he leaves, you know, this is a program that's in a bowl game. And did Jones elevate the level of play at Duke? Maybe. I mean, they won four games his first year as a starter. You know, in his final year, they win six. So maybe, you know, but I, I think that we try to give numbers context. We try to give evaluations context, but sometimes that does seem to swing wildly in the other direction. And a parallel to the Jones conversation is the Rosen conversation, you know, because a lot of people said, Look, Josh Rosen showed us last year he's not the quarterback that was promised. There's a reason why he only fetched a second rounder in return. And there's a lot of discussion initially about maybe he wasn't as good. But then when we start to put the context around it, you start to talk about the talent that was around him. And near the end of that discussion, it was almost like Josh Rosen was playing quarterback for my high school football team. It's like, oh, well, you, who are these receivers? And I mean, I did some of that as well. I mean, I remember going on some shows saying, all right, we're going to list some names. Who are the actual wide receivers for the Arizona Cardinals last year? And I'm listed off names and people are like, no, those are all fake names. I'm like, no, no these are their real receivers. Like, So I did some of that as well. But it does seem like we sometimes swing wildly. These were still Division One FBS college football players. And you can look at the numbers and say that, what, what is it? Like 3% of all high school football players – play in college i mean it's still upper echelon talent maybe it's not on the par of say alabama or clemson but these are still guys that are going out like at a scholarship to play football and so at some point you would have liked to have seen him elevate the level of talent and similarly you look at his games against perhaps lesser opponents and you see some struggles i mean you you mentioned the wake forest game where he completes 47.2 percent of his passes you can look at you know, a game like Virginia, where he's 22 of 40, you know, for two interceptions, probably his worst game, maybe if not for that Miami game. But I think that Miami game, that was one of those in some rough conditions. And so I think context is important, obviously, but you have to try to walk that line between, you know, again, it's a matter of weight. How much do you weigh it? If you swing wildly in the surrounded talent was so bad direction, then you're almost excusing the quarterback and taking sort of the agency out of his hands. Like at some point, he's going to make the throw. At some point, he's going to make the read. 
And you can, if it were an instance where you'd watch him and you would say, look, he's always making the right read. He's always making the right decision. He's just continually getting let down left and right. Then that's one thing. But if you see him on some of those deeper routes, like the numbers you went through, Dan, where he's missing throws in the intermediate region, when he gets downfield concepts called, he's staring down targets and making poor reads and locking on to targets. That's not a surrounding talent issue. That's a Daniel Jones issue. And so I think, again, it's important to, you know, when you're watching and evaluating these players, yes, context is important, but don't overweigh it to the point where you just excuse everything you see with your own eyes. Yeah, I see that. And uh, I remember, I think it was uh, Brian Billick, I think, tweeted this. Uh, that was a very weird sentence to say. Um, but right. a couple of years ago, <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. But I, I think like a, a year or so ago, when we were the quarter, it was around this time of year. It was either last year or two years ago, where I think he said that oh, one of the biggest mistakes Baltimore made when he was there in the Kyle Bowler evaluation right. was uh, putting too much emphasis on the surrounding talent that he did not have. And, and I think that's true. I think the same thing was kind of used for Josh Allen last year. Yeah. Uh, and that was the thing. The case was not used for Lamar Jackson last year, who was not working with a lot of NFL talent. Um, so we kind of just go hit and miss here. I think another thing that really stood out when when going back and watching Jones, and, and I want to get your take here as someone who's looked at this a little more, there are not a lot of... I don't know if I want to say NFL throws or wow throws, but not a lot of those throws really stand out and make you think, oh, that's a special quarterback. I think there's a lot of those throws on uh, Kyler Murray's tape. There are a decent amount of those throws on Dwayne Haskins' tape. There were a lot of those throws on Will Greer's tape, which is why I liked him a lot more than some other people did. But going through the Daniel Jones tape, I, I just, I don't see those types of throws that make you think, yeah, he can really do something. Yeah. And, you know, to, to the Billick point first, and, you know, the, the context thing is a crutch. Nobody wants to be wrong. And so three years from now, those of us who say hit on Daniel Jones in either direction, whether he pans out or not, will point to context and say, oh, well, he, he didn't have the talent. And, and so that's why or you know, he didn't have the team around him. He didn't have the scheme, whatever. Nobody wants to be wrong. And context is a great way to sort of temper mistakes. Now, to the to the Jones film itself, you know, it's fascinating. I, we were talking before it came on about how much I end up talking about these quarterbacks and so many different shows, so many different podcasts, radio bits, whatever. And, you know, in, in doing that and in watching these guys, there are throws from every single player that stick in my mind where if I get asked a question, I know, like, I can go to on Will Greer, you know, Texas throw, Kansas throw one, Kansas throw two whatever Baylor throw one, two and three that I have in my mind plays where I can just recite from memory, what he did, what he read and where he put it, you know, same thing with Murray, same thing with Haskins, same thing with Rippin with Jones. Despite all the film I've watched, I've got one, I've got one throw that just sticks in my mind where I'm like, okay, this is him at his best. And it's from that Virginia game 
that cover two trap play where they're running Ohio. He's looking at the flat route from the slot receiver. The cornerback traps it. So he on the fly comes to the boundary, go drills it in there along the sideline before the cover two safety can get there. And I'm like, yeah, give me that. Give me that throw 10 times a game and I'll start to believe. But that's the one guys. That's the one that I come to. And for all of the other quarterbacks, even guys that were behind him, Ryan Finley, I can give you three f- throws from the Syracuse game alone where I'm like, that's an NFL read and an NFL throw. With Jones, the entire body of work, I've got one. And yes, that's a small sample size issue because it's dependent on the games that I've watched and how my memory works. But for a guy that was picked sixth overall, you can be sure that I've had to talk about him a lot and I've had to see a lot of his stuff. And that's the one throw I can come back to with him. And so I think you're right with that. There's a lot of okay, this was a well-executed design, a quick read and a quick decision. And now maybe just part of that is the fact that the offense they were running didn't lend itself to a lot of wow-type throws. It was a lot of pedestrian extended handoffs. And okay, that might be how he's best used as a quarterback in the National Football League. But when it comes down to things that stick in your mind, things you'll remember, things that you will say, months down the road years down the road this is why this guy got drafted there's not a lot of that stuff on film from him and i think that's kind of a big big part of the reason why at least on our board before the draft we had him down in the third round yeah i mean like that's understandable that's why i had him i mean i had him as a day two pick and part of it is the scheme fit thing because when you're talking about a guy that you're going to pick sixth overall you want to be able to use him almost universally, right? You want some variety to him. You don't want to say, all right, this is our guy. Now we have to like tailor everything else around him to what he can do because he's limited schematically. You'd like to see a little bit more diversity to his game than just this is all he can do. Now, if there is, again, is that sort of we had to put the handcuffs on and we had to hamstring him because of the lack of talent from Cutcliffe type thing going on, then maybe – there's more to it than we're seeing and there's room for growth. And if so, like fine. But from what we were able to see, it's a schematically limited quarterback and you would like to see more. And so again, the evaluation difference between us and the NFL, that might be there and the stuff we don't get access to might be the reason why. But from film alone and the stuff we saw, I struggled to see him as a first round quarterback. I just truly did. And look again, and interest of transparency, look, I missed on quarterbacks in this class, or Brett Rippon. I missed on quarterbacks before. I'll miss on quarterbacks again. And, you know, we, we learned from that. But from where I sat, from what I saw, I just struggled to see him as a round one quarterback. I mean, obviously, with my Patriots background, I would go on shows or podcasts and people would say, Daniel Jones is there at 32. How would you feel about the Patriots drafting him? And I would say I would grudgingly understand it. Like, I wouldn't do it, but if you want to address quarterback there, he's either your best player left on the board or your best quarterback left on the board right now, and that's what you want to address right now, then okay. Like, I would get it. I wouldn't be that excited about it, but I would understand it. And that was at 32. And so you can imagine sort of when this pick was made at six, again, how I felt about it. All the caveats about – pick your guy at six, don't wait till 17 aside, like just in a vacuum. It's like, that's a bold decision. And we'll see if it pans out. For the kid, I hope it does because let's be honest, 
the fact that we're talking about it now, we know, I mean, we have the video evidence of the sports Pope himself. If they go quarterback here, uh, we say, oh my God, they took the quarterback. Like, that's what he has facing him for the next three, four years of his life. If things go well, imagine if it doesn't, what it's going to be like for Daniel Jones in New York City. Mark, can we talk about the Senior Bowl really quickly? Sure. Because you were on with us ask. right after. Yep. You explained what his week looked like during practice. Typically, the practices are what evaluators wait more. Uh, that apparently was not the case for the Giants and Dave Gettleman, who saw three series and against a defense that's not allowed to blitz and has very simple coverages. Um, so, why? <laughs> yeah, why indeed. I mean, when I heard that from Gettleman, I, my instant reaction was, did he see the three quote-unquote series that I saw during Wednesday's practice. And I know I must have run through them, but if I didn't, or even if I did, here's just a little refresher on the Wednesday practice. It was held indoors. We couldn't watch it because they had a small practice bubble. And so did not get to see the Wednesday practice until that night on film. And now, why am I talking about the Wednesday practice? Well, to back up a couple of steps, we've been talking about how Daniel Jones, ideally a West Coast quarterback, Ideal offense for him, a West Coast system because of all the quick game stuff and the proficiency he shows Proficiency he shows in that area in terms of decision-making and ball placement. So what does he get to do down at Mobile? Play for John Gruden. And if there's a phrase outside of Spider 2Y Banata that is associated <laughs> with John Gruden, it's West Coast offense. And so this is the ideal situation. I mean, I couldn't imagine a more ideal situation for an individual than me walking into a room to discuss Toto and gardening. Like, it's an ideal environment. There should be no hesitation in thinking that in that kind of environment, I would give a pretty good talk. And so similarly, you, we went into this week, or at least I did, expecting Daniel Jones to have a very good week. And so that's the foundation. Tuesday, it's an install. You're thrown to guys for the first time. Like, you take Tuesday as a baseline day. Wednesday. Again, don't get to see it live, so I'm watching the tape. I put on the seven-on-seven, seven, right? Because that's what you want to see. There's no offensive line, no defensive line, no blitzes. It's just, can you decipher quickly the coverage and put the ball where it needs to be? And so this is, again, in the ideal system, ideal environment, ideal setting, everything. This is now day two. Jones, I expect to be pretty good in this drill. If not completing everything, making the right reads, the right decisions, and put the ball where it needs to be. Here are his first three throws. Speed out to the left, five yard out that he airmails. Didn't even come close. I think it hit a TV stand like 30 yards away. Like it was just an awful throw. So that's series one, okay? Play one, whatever. Next throw. It is an out route to the left side that he locks on. And now he throws it, okay? That lawn pause is how long he looked at the route, threw it, pick six going the other way. Okay, so we can call that series two. Series three, throw to the left side. His receiver falls down, and he stares at him, and he stares at him, and he throws it to him anyway, and that's a pick six going the other way. 
And so that's one of those put the pen down moments. I was watching it with Joseph Ferriola from Inside the Pylon, NFL Next Gen. And I, I turned to Joey and I'm like, I think we're done here. We can watch the next quarterback. Like, that's what I saw during the week. And yes, you're right, Dan and Chris, the way you guys framed it. The evaluation process of the Senior Bowl is done by Thursday. You know, you go to the practices on Tuesday and it's packed and everybody's there and you're seeing your buddies from other sites and different media outlets and different teams and it's a full house. By Thursday, it's like me and Matt Waldman and a bunch of kids from local high schools. Like everybody clears out. All the teams are gone for the most part because the bulk of the work is done. You want to see Tuesday, the baseline day, and Wednesday sort of, okay, how are they developing? And then, yeah, you'll watch Thursday's practices on the flight home or you know the next day back at the complex. But the bulk of the work is done. And that's what I saw. That's why when people asked me about Daniel Jones and his senior ball, I said, look, for the expectations I had in place for him, it was an underwhelming performance because this was an ideal situation. And I felt like the week of practice just did not live up to what I was expecting. And this was, again, I was coming in not high on him to begin with, but I thought if there was a situation where a you know, quarterback was going to rise, I thought there were two guys that were going to have the kind of weeks that could move the boards for them. I thought one was Jones, given the sort of situation he was in. I thought one was Stidham because that Auburn offense wasn't great. Baylor might have not been the best fit for him. And now he's going to get a chance to run Kyle Shanahan's offense. And Stidham played himself into a day two pick as a result. And so the senior bowl argument, I, I take that with a big grain of salt. And yeah, did he do some stuff during the game itself? Maybe. But the bulk of the evaluation senior bowl week is done before the game kicks off. And you know, by this point, speaking of the game, the MVP award might as well just come with a contract for the New York Giants. Yeah, I mean, it, it might as well just come with a contract for an NFC East team because we had Dak Prescott a couple of years ago, right. you know, and, and and Prescott similarly had what I thought was a poor week. You know, he struggled with ball placement. I remember looking at – he missed a throw on Thursday when there was just a handful of us left there, and I'm just like, I don't know what we're doing here. I don't know what to do with him. And he gets drafted in the fourth round and goes on to have the rookie of the year type of season that he did. Now, again, context, I think, was important because we've seen him struggle at times. But, you know, maybe there is an argument that for a player like, say, a Dak Prescott or maybe others, that maybe they aren't practice players, that they're gamers, that they turn it on when the lights are on or something like that. Well, okay, but did Daniel Jones really do that at Duke? Like, I don't know. And so that's why, again, I don't put a ton of stock into the game itself. I don't think most do. I do wonder if at some level, you know, Gettleman is, is, is trolling the right word. I don't know, you know, but I've talked to some people after the pick was made, some people that know Gettleman, some people that think the world of him. And they just firmly believe that a, like I had one person that thinks the world of him call me up the Friday after and say, can you explain the Daniel Jones thing to me? Cause I can't figure it out. You know, you've watched him more than me. Like, why? And this is somebody that thinks the world of him. And I had somebody else that thinks very highly of Gettleman say, you know, I think at some level, perhaps with some of the comments, the, you know, the, the senior bowl comment or the three series comment or whatever, at some level, maybe he's needling us a bit in the media. I don't know if that's true or not, you know, but he puts it out there and he exposes himself to the, these, you know, criticisms. And, you know, the thing to remember about him, a lot of people have taken the sort of senior bowl comment and said, this is the first time he's seeing this guy. Like, He's not a traveling GM is what I've been told. He's a guy that 
watches tape in the office like nonstop, doesn't really travel much. And so, yeah, his first time seeing him in person was a senior bowl, but he had probably seen every throw the kids ever made once or twice, if not more. And, and so, you know, I, I think that deserves to be said in the sense of that, yeah, I'm sure he did his homework on him. It's just sometimes you could do all the homework in the world and it might not lead you to the right decision. I think that's where some of us on the outside are, are saying is that, yeah, he did the work, but we disagree with the end product. Yeah, and I think he he did mention that, and obviously we're we've been hard on Gettleman. None of us are going to be naive enough to say he's never watched tape before the Senior Bowl. And I think even in his press conference, he said that was the first time he saw Jones live. But he had gone to Oklahoma, West Virginia, and saw Murray and Greer together. He had uh, seen Dwayne Haskins play at Ohio State one time, even though he still thought they played in the Big Twelve. Big 12 um, yeah. I mean, obviously, and not great comments sometimes when put in context. I don't blame him for not going to Duke to uh, specifically watch Daniel Jones when there's not a lot else to watch. But I think maybe let's go into what he can be at the NFL level. And I think we've, you know, talked about how, you know, in the West Coast, in the quick style, then that the Giants are possibly setting up, especially with you know, bringing in someone like Golden Tate. Uh, and when you look at what Jones did, he had about 75% of his throws came within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage. And that's probably what it's going to look like at the NFL level. And I've looked at some of the quarterbacks that were really good last year, and they threw about 70% of their throws within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage. But when you look at like expected points added or some other advanced stats, almost all of the value comes further than 10 yards down the line of scrimmage. So I think maybe we can end here and just figure out, can Jones translate and get that value down the field when you might be able to kind of put together something that looks passable in the short range, but is that value going to be there down the field? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that might be sort of the ultimate question with him because, you know, we the bulk of NFL throws are made 20 yards or in. I mean, a couple of years ago, it was the 2017 season, I looked at it, and for example, you know, it was the throws that were less than 20 yards, and for most teams, that's where the bulk of their throws came. I mean, you look at guys like Alex Smith, Drew Brees, Jared Goff, it was like 90% of their throws were less than 20 yards. And even the teams that pushed it downfield the most in terms of percentage of their throws, it was Deshaun Watson before he got hurt, and it was just 17.2% of his throws were 21 yards or more. You know, And this was a quarterback who people thought didn't have the arm strength to operate in a downfield offense. And so you know, one of my takeaways from that was – if you scheme some stuff open, yeah, you can do that. And so that might be the issue, and that might be the ultimate thing with Jones, is can Pat Schumer, when Jones eventually takes over, whether it's late this season, early this season, next season, whenever, put together an offense that combines his proficiency in the short area of the field, which is where most teams operate to begin with 70 80 90% of the time, with enough scheme shots downfield where you can maximize those opportunities. And, you know, Watson's year, his adjusted net yards per attempt was 7.19, which is a pretty good number, you know, because they got the most of those downfield shots. And so that's going to be it with Jones. Can you put together the offense that handles what he does well 
keeps the offense sort of on schedule, avoids turnovers, gives him those quick decisions and quick reads where he can be comfortable. But yet when he has the opportunities downfield, he makes the most of it. And instead of staring stuff down or things like that, he's finally able to capitalize on the opportunities in front of him in the downfield passing game. If they do that, this can work. From what we saw in film, maybe it's a big question mark, but you got to think as fans of an organization that they have the plan in place to make that happen. Yeah, and I, I think that might be next time we have you on, because we will again, that might be where we go. Just spin it forward and see what this whole thing could look like yeah. or maybe should look like. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it look, we're, we're going to be in rookie minicamp and things like that. I, I do think that it's important to temper the expectations because you, any rookie minicamp is going to be a developmental curve, a steep one for quarterbacks. You're going to be throwing to guys over the next couple of days at Giants rookie minicamp that aren't going to be in the league that much longer. And so I know there will be a tendency and a belief that we're going to chart every throw of him this week and hope that he's worthy of the sixth overall pick. You know, I know there are people on Twitter right now saying, you know, we can't temper the expectations. I think you have to just because if we get picked sixth overall, even Kyler Murray is going to struggle at his rookie minicamp because you've been going through four months of the world's strangest job interview. Now you're finally getting a playbook and some guys to throw to and you're getting a chance to play football again. It's not all going to come together immediately. And so the hope for Giants fans is he starts learning how to play the position at the NFL level, how to be a quarterback at the professional level, how to handle the things that go into playing quarterback, starting to learn the offense and just trying to get better every single day. And ideally they put him in that kind of offense that we've talked about. And you can start seeing me used that way. Whether they do that, I'll check back in, say, you know, June, July, and August when we see what this offense actually looks like on the field. All right, great, Mark. Thank you very much. Appreciate you joining us and and breaking down Daniel Jones. Like Chris said, I'm sure this will not be the final time we talk to you on a subject like this. So why don't you let everyone know uh, where they can find your work? Oh, Chris, Dan, thanks again so much for having me on. I always love coming on, talking about this stuff with you guys. Easiest way to keep up with me is on Twitter, at Mark Schofield. You can follow me along there. Right for places like InsideThePylon.com, Pro Football Weekly, Matt Waltman's Rookie Scouting Portfolio, Big Blue View, Bleeding Green Nation, Pat's Pulpit, whole host of other places, and the Locked on Patriots podcast. If you ever feel like tuning into a show that's like 60% Pats, 30% quarterbacks, 10% Garden and Toto, that's kind of the show for you. All right. Well, thank you very much. You can find me on Twitter at Dan Pizzuto. You can find Chris on Twitter at RaptorMKII. Thank you guys for listening, and we will talk to you again soon.